Well, again, uh, always happy to come back to the seminary. And uh, the sad part about uh, coming back every year is I see more and more people that I don't know. Um, so that's encouraging, but uh, eventually, perhaps, probably not, I'll get to know all of you. Uh, but that would be a, a great, it's a great thing to see the seminary prospering. Our society is not necessarily prospering. As we see the rotten fruit of the sexual reformation stinking and festering all around us. It has gotten to such a uh, deplorable condition that a friend of mine has written recently a tract uh, designed particularly for uh, the LGBTQIA plus pride community, where he makes the statement, and I think rightly so, that this transgender movement is a new pagan form of the old Judaizing heresy which called people to cut off parts of their own bodies to obtain some sort of quasi-pseudo-wholeness. <laughs> we can ask the question, how, how did we get here? Well, I can tell you that this is merely the uh, part of the sliding uh, spectrum that we find ourselves that continued downward from previous concessions and previous sins and previous problems it is the current condition of the degrading slide of sexual immorality and perversity. And there is and will only continue to be, as we see at least in the near future, increasing pressure upon you as individuals and upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a holy institution to compromise what the word of God says or on what the word of God says to concede uh, concerning the claims of truth that the word of God sets forth, and even and especially to participate in our society's debaucherous celebration of every form of iniquity. And now, as in every age that the church has existed, Christ calls us to something far, far better. He calls us to himself. The book of Ephesians, uh, one writer said, uh, is of an elevated tone because there's no particular controversy that gave rise to it. You can think of the way Galatians begins with something of, a, of an acid-dipped pen, uh, where Ephesians begins with this melodic, symphonic, Trinitarian, devotional, uh, glorious statement at the beginning where with breathless wonder, Paul sketches out the glory of the triune God and all that he's doing, how he's gathering into Christ uh, God is gathering into Christ Jew and Gentile to make a new humanity to serve him. And in doing that, this great mystery of the church, putting to shame all of his enemies. And uh, as you should be learning, uh, Ephesians is a great model of the uh, indicative imperative order. And as we turn into Ephesians 4, all of the great demands of grace are set before the church of Christ as fruit of how the church should be responding both to uh, the word ministry of the offices that the ascended Christ has given to the church, but then also as the spirit enabled new humanity, what it looks like to live in this world as those who are new creatures, uh, new creations in Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And so as he's dealing with these particular issues, he comes to chapter five, where we're going to consider this morning that we are to imitate God in Christ-like, spirit-enabled purity in our perverse age. Your call this morning, in your own lives, and in your own spheres of influence, however large or small they may be, is to imitate God 
in Christ-like, spirit-enabled purity in our perverse age. And the applicability of such a statement should be self-evident. And with that in mind, let's look at our text. I want to begin first as we look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, and make a few comments on the high calling of sanctity or holiness in Jesus Christ. The high calling of sanctity in Christ. Paul says, therefore, again, continuing this work of what does the spirit-filled new creation life look like? Be imitators of God as dear or as beloved children. Uh, a life of Godward imitation is uh, what he's asking for, what he's demanding what he's exhorting to. This is true godliness. We use the term that's godly. Well, really, perhaps more helpfully, but a bit more uh, cumbersome, is, or it's godlikeness, isn't it? We want to be like God. We ought to be. Now, one of my earliest memories uh, comes from uh, the place of my birth. Uh, I hope you don't hold it against me. I was born in Quebec, Canada. Uh, and one of the things that we did there up in the northern part of that province uh, in the winters is we would go out on our snowmobile, which we affectionately called our skidoo. And my dad would tie a string back behind the skidoo and uh, connect a little uh, sled to it. And my brother and I would uh, enjoy riding on that. But uh, one day our skidoo stopped running and the ignition uh, switch would not work. And so dad uh, resorted to pulling on a pull cord to try to get uh, the skidoo working and he looked back and he saw me by my sled pulling an imaginary pull cord uh, trying to get my sled started why i wanted to be like my dad there's something very natural and something very good about children wanting to be like their father and while this is a wonderful thing and something that all of you who are fathers should take very carefully to heart it also, by way of contrast, is illustrative of the horrific and exceeding sinfulness effects of sin. Because we who were made to be like God, Adam who bore God's image, who would have walked before him in uprightness and in holiness, now, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we have, not we have become children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And the glorious work of Christ in the gospel and the spirit of adoption is transforming those who are children of wrath by nature into then dear and beloved children who are called then to imitate, to follow, to live with that imprint of God the Father in our lives, doing the things that he would do, loving the things that he loves, prioritizing the things that he prioritizes. What does that mean in some very broad contours? Well, it means if we are to imitate God, we ought also then to have a zeal for his honor. We should have love for his law. We should be seeking and maintaining purity in his worship, jealousy for his name, care for his church, and particularly delight for his son, the son to whom we now consider or to whom we now turn. We are called then as imitators of God to walk in love. This is hand in glove. This is hand in hand, really, with this. We imitate God as we walk in love as Jesus did, as Christ did, who loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The imitation of God is not some sort of uh, trail through the mountains without those helpful blazes that you can find from time to time. It is an unbeaten path. It's the way of Christ. Christ, the one who walked at first, Christ, the grand 
exemplar. And we all know he's not merely exemplar, but that doesn't mean he's not one. We are to follow him, walk as Christ walked. Jesus who came as the expression of the Father's love. Jesus who gave himself over to the hands of sinful men. Jesus who was crucified as a display first of his love to the Father. Never forget that the cross is not only or not even primarily about the salvation of sinners, but it is Jesus demonstrating to the world, as he says in John 14, 31, that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Everything Jesus did, first and foremost, was the display of his own love for his Father. And so we are to walk as Christ did. These are the guardrails. This is the shape of the Christian life. It's Christ's life, a life consecrated unto God, consecrated even unto death. The death of Christ, which we see here before us, a death that is satisfying. A death that in the legal sense is satisfying of the just wrath of God due to us, due to each and every one of you for sin. But another shade here on this, what Paul is talking about, is a life that is satisfying in terms of its fragrance and the language here is very close if not actually in the in, in septuagint it's actually the same exact phrase as that uh was used to describe noah's sacrifice where god smells that fragrance that sweet smelling aroma that came up to him and he promises never again to curse the ground because of man and as god receives that fragrance of christ's life never will he curse the redeemed for christ's sake because Jesus has brought them into the life of new creation. And it would be pleasing and it would be edifying for us to fix our minds on that, to stay here, to consider it for a while. But Paul doesn't. And we must not. Because as we hold these grand truths, and you must believe in those great truths and take hold of Christ, and as you lay hold of him, walk with him and in him, that you might be obedient to this high calling of holiness in Christ. Paul does move, inspired by the Spirit, to what the workmanship of Jesus must look like in contrast to the depravity and degeneracy of the world. There is a high calling of sanctity in Christ, set in marked contrast to the second thing we're going to consider this morning, which are the high stakes of perversity in this world. The Bible is timeless, isn't it? Perhaps different occasions, different cultural emphases were here and there in other times of history. But what Paul is writing about, which was true then, is most certainly and clearly true now. As he addresses perversity, not of a general kind, but of a sexual kind. If you all, I'm sure most of you have heard or watched uh, that great speech that uh, Dr. O'Palmer Robertson gave at the PCA's General Assembly. One of the things he said was that uh, nobody really uses the term perversity anymore, even though perversity abounds. I want to take a couple of moments and think about the pathology of perversity. What makes it so wretched? What is so awful about it? As you think about the pathology of sexual perversity, I want you to understand, first and foremost, this is something with which we must never, ever, ever, ever make peace. There is no 
peace, there's no place for perversity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, because of its power. It is a powerful sin. The coupling of seduction and the sinful inclination of our own sinful flesh makes a recipe for disaster. The Proverbs speak of this long before Paul came on the scene. As the father speaks to his son and he says, do not, verses Proverbs 7, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. And the her there is the her I described to my sons. This is lady adultery. The one who stands on the corner seducing you, do not turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. And now listen to me. If you think that you are some sort of human exception to this rule, she has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. It is a powerful sin, sexual immorality in all of its forms. It is a, secondly, polluting sin. A couple of weeks ago, we got a notice from the city of Royston Street Department uh, that as they had been working on a water main pipe, uh, it had broken And there was the possibility that it mixed with some of the waste and some of the contaminants. And so they told the whole city, my gigantic city of some 3,000 people, uh, to have a boil advisory. They wanted to make sure that uh, if there are any trace amounts of sewage, it didn't get into your mouth. You don't want it into your body. And the responses uh, from some of my fellow uh, Roystonians uh, was somewhat, uh, some of it kind of amusing, but also interesting. And they were very concerned about this possibility, even wondering, can I even take a shower? But I wonder, if we're so concerned about small traces of waste getting into our mouths, how many rivers of sewage are we letting into our eyes? How many things are you exposing uh, through the ear gate and the eye gate, which runs directly to your soul? The polluting nature of sexual perversity, it corrupts the mind. It will make your thoughts filthy. It will make your heart polluted and corrupted. Because as powerful as the sin is, as polluting as the sin is, it is impossible to keep that sin compartmentalized. It is impossible to keep it in one just small section of the life because it is pervasive. It is pervasive in the sense that in terms of the world as the sphere of iniquity, it is ubiquitous, it is everywhere, but it is also pervasive, that is, it fills everything. This is something that John saw as the angel shows him that great harlot, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, Babylon, and he says to John, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The universal availability and presence of sexual sin is nothing new. The desire to engage in sin and to continue lurking in the darkness and hiding in the shadows is nothing new. The new thing in our age related to that thing that is not new is the capacity to engage in these kinds of sins with a sense 
of human anonymity. However, and whatever screens you may use, whatever avenues you may use, and you ought not to use them for these iniquitous ends, there is a sense that, apart from God and your internet service provider, nobody knows. But God does know. It is perverse. It is pervasive. What ought we to do? Whenever I quote C.S. Lewis, I always have to give a little bit of a disclaimer. The problem with C.S. Lewis is that when he says it right, no one says it better. And when he says it wrong, no one says it better. I don't agree with everything he says, but some of what he says is very helpful. And in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a scene where uh, the sailors, as they're going on their quest, come to this island that's shrouded in this dark black mist. And it's an island where nightmares come true. And as the crew gets into a frenzy trying to row for all of their, with all their might for their lives, uh, the gallant little mouse, Reepicheep, uh, brings his umbrage to the king, to King Caspian. And he says, this is a rout. This is mutiny. We ought not to be doing this. Where is your, essentially, where is your bravery? And Caspian says to the crew, pull with all your lives. Pull for all your lives. And he looks to Reepicheep and he says, you can say what you like, Reepicheep. But there are some things no man can face. To which Reepicheep said, it is then my good fortune not to be a man. You are all men. You are all women. You are all susceptible. Some more than others by your constitution, your disposition, your past. You are all susceptible. And you must take heed to this. What are Paul's requirements regarding the perversity in the world? He has them here as he's talked about fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. He says, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints. That is, the requirement regarding the impurity of the age is eradication. You must eradicate it from your lives as carefully and go about it as assiduously as the most devoted Israelite would have removed leaven from his home. Uh, during the time of Passover. You are to remove it from your lives. It is to be eradicated first from the Christian community. As Paul says, it ought not even be named among you. He doesn't say you ought to be distant cousins. He doesn't say, well, keep it at an arm's length. No, he says it ought not be named. It ought not to be something that has any kind of familiar association with the saints. The saints, which means the holy ones, the ones set apart for holy service, the ones who are called to holy conduct. It is very obvious, unless you don't know anything about history, that the things that are considered somewhat normal now were actually scandals just in my lifetime. I'm only 34. It's a sad thing, and I'm not, I'm an OPC minister. We have plenty of problems, but I think this is a helpful illustration. There are debates in the PCA about side A and side B. What about holiness? I understand there are problems, and we need to be able to work through these things in a fitting way, but these sins, Paul says, are not even to be named among the saints. You will be called a fundamentalist. You will be called a prude. 
be called a legalist, but God calls you in Christ to purity. It ought to be eradicated, sexual sin eradicated from the Christian community. And Paul, interestingly enough, uh, though I hope you see logically, also adds it should be eradicated from the Christian vocabulary. For this, he says, uh, there should neither be, verse uh, 4 there, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. Why, why does Paul go to conversation, that is discussion, words, jokes? Well, it's because when you become careless in one part of your life, the human and fallen soul has this condition to become very callous. In many other areas of life. And this is the beginning slope. And it's great. If you read J.C. Ryle's book, Thoughts for Young Men, twice he says, if you don't remember anything, remember this. But he says two different things. I forget the first one. But the second one he says is don't engage with immoral women. It's like running down a slope. And you think you can stop when you come to the chasm. But you won't. Eradicate it from your vocabulary. No innuendo, no crudeness, no deception, even be exceedingly careful with sarcasm, make it your end in your speech to be wholesome, to be holy. Pornography is everywhere. It is the horrific legacy of wicked men and women that have left this and the corruption behind it. It is a huge driver of perversity. And I want to, in humility and in love for all of you, to urge you at this juncture, do not compare yourself to the world. Do not compare yourself to the pride parades. Do not compare yourself to those who have given way to such strong, diluted thinking that they don't know what a male or a female is. Don't go there. That's where society has gone, sadly. But you need to take your own soul to the cross of Christ and ask yourself the question, have you dabbled in these sins? Are you cherishing these sins? Do these sins have dominion in your life? And if they do, in any one of those things, you need to draw near to Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment. And you need to eradicate it from your life. For Christ's sake, for your soul's sake, for your family's sake, for your church's sake, for your nation's sake. Eradicate it. Paul gives us an interesting remedy as he's talked about this pathology and what his requirements are regarding this impurity. It's a very interesting remedy. He says, This you know, you ought not to be engaging in these. Or earlier, he says, You should not have these things, nor quote jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Giving of thanks, not only with the tongue, with the words, as a positive substitute for uh, foolish and filthy discussion, but as a reflection of what is in the heart. Why this? Well, perhaps more than in any other sin, sexual sin thrives on selfishness. God gave the gift of the relationship within marriage to serve the spouse and to enjoy the spouse. But when it's perverted, it is directed to self, my pleasure, my desires, what I want. But a thankful person is one who is recognizing I deserve nothing and I render gratitude to God for everything. And so thanksgiving is indicative of a heart that is satisfied in God 
and content before God. And Jeremiah Burroughs in his wonderful little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he tells a story of a man who was sitting at a table and soldiers came in uh, to his house and they began to tempt him and to seduce him with bribes and threats to be unfaithful to his nation. Well, Burroughs says that this man looked at the soldiers and he said, I thank God I'm content with this fare because he was eating a bowl of turnips. I don't know what your favorite food is, but I would doubt any of you say, I love turnips. But this man said, I thank God I'm content with this fare. And as for the rewards, let them be offered to those that cannot be content to dine with a dish of turnips. Burroughs concludes saying, temptations will no more prevail over a contented man than a dart that is thrown against a bronze wall. Cultivating contentment in your station in life, in the spouse that God has given you, in the providence that God has set before you, the lot whose lines God has drawn for you, in the work God has given to you. Cultivating contentment in these things is a great remedy and a great method by which we can eradicate sexual immorality from the Christian community, from your own vocabulary, from your life. I want to close with one final thought here, which is what Paul closes with in verses 6 and 7, which is the severe judgment that is drawing ever nearer because of sexual immorality. He says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Just before that, he lays out one of the severe consequences for engaging in a habitual manner in an unrepentant way of these sins. As he repeats the sins in verse 5 that he mentioned already in verse 3, he says, you need to know this, that no one who does these things, who's an idolater, will be an inheritor of the kingdom of Christ and of God. The consequence of living in these sins is the disinheritance of the good kingdom that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not only is this sin not fitting for the saints, if cherished, it is proof positive you are not a saint and need to be converted and need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and need to go to the cross to find in him the sin-killing power which he provides by his spirit. The consequences are enormous. You are disqualified from the kingdom of Christ and of God, and you will be subject to eternal and everlasting damnation. If you live in these sins for the momentary fleeting pleasure, you will then engage in an eternity of judgment, and an eternity in which one of the most painful parts of that judgment will be the worm of conscience convicting you, endlessly telling you, as the Proverbs say, oh, why did I not listen to wisdom? And when you cry, cry out in that way, the Bible tells us wisdom will look at you and it will laugh at you. The consequences are nothing to be winked at, nothing to be ignored, glossed over. They are immense. But also, in a heightened manner, understand this, these consequences are absolutely certain. They're certain. Look what Paul says. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Empty words. This word empty, same word that we use for when we talk about the kenosis heresy. Words that are emptied of sense and of truth and of wisdom. People who want to lie to you about this 
Those words are empty. Culture is lying to you. Be true to yourself. If you're not going to engage in this yourself, if you're not going to engage your own self-destructive mutilation, then you need to support those who are going there. And if not, you're going to be canceled. Governments are saying this. There's legislation in various countries countries focused upon punishing people and parents who are seeking to pull people back from this very road of destruction. But don't listen to their empty words. Because the consequences are certain. It is no coincidence that all of these sins are going on under the banner of pride. But we know that pride comes before absolute destruction. Culture, perhaps the state, society at large is going to call you to pride. Be true to yourself. Christ calls you die to yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. Cast away vain and empty words. And while opposing this may, in fact, incur the wrath of man, whether it be legal wrath or societal wrath, let me assure you, these are not vain and empty words. It is far better to face the wrath of man with the approval of God than to stand before the wrath of God with no mediator, with no one to intercede. The consequences are both immense and certain. These sins are like billboards held up to the wrath of God saying, hit me. It's a provocation before the face of God. And therefore, the calling for you this morning is absolutely clear. Paul says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not have fellowship with them. Now, we know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't he don't associate with sinners because you'd have to go out of the world. What is the them? Particularly, it's the sons of disobedience as they're engaged in their iniquity. You are to have no fellowship. You don't sit at the table of iniquity. You don't click on their links. You don't look at their images. You don't watch their movies. You don't support their agendas. You do not become allies with them. But you stay faithful to Christ, not going to Lady Adultery's corner, not leaving a single room in your life unswept of this sin by way of toleration. Don't be a partaker of these things. Brothers and sisters, we must take heed to these warnings and be encouraged with these exhortations. It says here that on account of these things, the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience. But what Paul is calling you to be is to walk as an imitator of God, as a beloved, dear son. Not in this way. Calvin says very helpfully, Paul does not say here that those who have fallen into these sins and recovered from them are not pardoned, but pronounces sentence on the sins themselves. These sins are perverse. These sins are powerful. These sins are pervasive, but they're not unpardonable. And Christ is able. He is able to break the power of reigning sin, setting that captive free. As we know, those great truths that maybe for some of you were those very words that gave you so much hope. As Paul said, such were some of you. That's what, that, what, that is what must be the Christian testimony. That was what I was, but not what I am. 
because now I am in Christ. This is why you must draw near to Christ, not only for the first time in conversion, but daily as you walk with him, understanding that this sin is everywhere. Brethren, there are some things that no man can face. And Paul's admonitions when it comes to sexual immorality is simply one thing. Flee. We don't flee haphazardly. We don't flee without any direction. We flee to righteousness. We run from those things to the good things of Christ. And we come to Christ, the one who in his temptation, emaciated, weak, alone, surrounded by wild beasts, Mark tells us. Something. And it's that Savior who is sympathetic to us and our weaknesses. That Savior who intercedes for us and says, draw near to me, asking me, asking my Father for help in time of need. Yes, brothers, sisters, be much in prayer. Be careful. Eradicate these sins. But remember that Christ died for sins such as these, was raised for our justification. And is the living Christ with whom we must walk and maintain purity in our perverse age. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are weak and we know that this sin that has so marked and marred our culture, Lord, families in our churches, maybe even our own lives. Lord, how we pray that you would restore the years that this locust has eaten. That you would give us wisdom to deal with this great sin of iniquity. We pray, O oh God, that in this respect, you would keep us unspotted by the world. That you would adorn our lives with holiness in addition to that profession of our faith. And you'd give us strength to live lives of purity. That we would be uh, as those who are marked out in the book of Revelation as virgins who have kept themselves from women. Lord, how we pray that you would also bless your church's witness, that we would remain steadfast and faithful and immovable, abounding in your work. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to hold up a gospel, the only gospel that can deliver those who are being drawn away even now unto death in this manner. Lord, guard, we pray, guard our hearts, guard our minds. Help us to set nothing unclean before our eyes. Lead us, we pray, by your goodness to repentance where that is needed. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.